Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Sarah Theom, a developer advocate for Filecoin Virtual Machine at Protocol Labs. Protocol Labs is an open source research and development lab that builds protocols, tools, and services for decentralized networks. Sarah's team is focused on supporting Filecoin BM, a programmable layer for the Filecoin storage network. In this conversation, we talk about lessons learned from Sarah's previous experience in both the government and enterprise sectors the significance of combining smart contracts with decentralized storage, supporting teams that are new to the Filecoin ecosystem, protocol agnosticism for the multi-chain future, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Sarah, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, what's going on? Today we are joined by Sarah Theom, a developer advocate at the Filecoin Virtual Machine Team. How are you doing today, Sarah? Hey, nice to meet you. Um, I'm doing good. Um, It's been a really exciting time. We are heading to Denver in a few days, and uh, we are launching in about less than 10 days. So it's very, very insane right now. Yeah, you have a lot of things coming up. It's kind of crazy that you're sending your team to a major, uh, what's turning into a two-week conference here at East Denver. Everything kicks off today and uh, concludes in the first week of March. So it's kind of a, a rough schedule for you to be at a major conference and also launching onto mainnet in the coming weeks. It is, it is. Um, sometimes we also take a pause and be like, what? Are we doing again? No, but I think it's a good thing. Like we very much want to get in touch with like the builder community. Um, we've been building with early builders since the start, like the inception of FEVM, which is the Ethereum compatible version of the FEM. And so East Denver is like one of the big conferences for the Ethereum community, and FEVM is super relevant for them. So we want to make sure that we're there and we're talking to people and getting feedback um live. So yeah, a lot of exciting things that we are doing in Denver itself, which will make a lot of sense as we ramp up to its launch on March 14th. Yeah, there's going to be about 30,000 people here at this East Denver this year, which is the largest that the event has ever been able to garner. So you guys are going to be meeting a lot of potential users and builders. Oh, that's really good to know. Yeah, we we were like kind of speculating, will it be larger, like post-COVID or, you know, smaller? But no, this is really good to hear. Yeah, it's it's going to be awesome. I myself am looking forward to it. I'm already getting a weird sense of FOMO because everybody's on Twitter posting their flight pics where they're coming to, to East Denver and I'm already here. So yeah, <laughs> events start to kick off and, and I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully looking forward to running into you and your team. But something that before you brought up a lot of keywords, you were talking about the FVM, and I want to dig way deep into that. But before we do that, you have kind of a cool background. And before you were doing what you're doing now for the FVM team, you were working at Microsoft and you also worked for GovTech Singapore. So maybe you could just share a little bit of your history before you got into the blockchain space. 
Yeah, thanks for asking me that. It's been such a long time. Well, I mean, in Web3, everything moves so quickly that it's been, what, five months at PL. Sometimes it feels like it's a whole career on its own. <laughs> so totally different worlds that I think I've come from before joining into PL itself and Web3 as a whole. So yeah, I was at Microsoft. I started my career there. I was doing um, a whole host of different things, which mostly do with product. So product marketing, product uh, managing, and then developer relations was like a really natural segue, um, just because I wanted to get closer to the people building it and like what their experience was, and just the community was so attractive that I just ended up following the developer relations at Microsoft, which was very different from what other developer relations teams have been. So from there, I then moved on to GovTech Singapore. I think I was naturally just really curious about tech for public good and what that can actually look like at the institution that. Um, runs it because in Singapore it is very much government-centric for how the country moves and so I was really curious to see how citizen applications and the tech strategy for Singapore itself was being built out so I joined that and kind of did like an international developer relations role so I was based in the U.S. kind of coordinating across opportunities here back to Singapore and to grow the ecosystem that we were progressing up um, on so after that, um, so that gave me a really different view and, you know, whole different industry, very different ways of working, very different ways of engineering. And then coming to Web3, it was just so different. I think coming from somewhere that was much more centralized in nature and the way that we think about things. Also, Singapore being like a high-trust society, Web3 is not something that is really thought about too much in terms of national strategy. So I was just really curious, like, what is Web3 about? What is this decentralized thing? Does it really bring more equity to people, like, everyone involved? And, you know, how does that look like building from the ground up and taking away, like, the piece on, like, building up a reputation as the one big company itself and having everything centralized around it, having a lot more buffer or a lot more things in the middle from the product itself to then delivering the service to the customer? And what can that look like when you flatten it down a lot more and have a lot more people involved in a decentralized um, space. So that's kind of why I got into Web3. Um, was really fortunate to then join the FBM team. It was pitched to me as like the biggest thing and I didn't realize how big it was to Filecoin and what the launch actually meant and what that would mean for six months ahead and you know all the way to the end of this year. But yeah, that has been a really, really exciting journey. Like FBM is really a big thing coming to the Filecoin network. Um, I think we very much started out building it as a product on its own, but now we're recognizing that this ties into Filecoin network itself. It is a huge feature that is coming to the network. And it's actually the first time that developers are going to be, developers aside from storage providers, are going to be interacting with the network itself um, rather than just making storage deals. And so that we are like getting so much new feedback around like deal, storage deal making, what that means, how people understand the network and how things actually run. And it's also a good bossing function for us to think about streamlining certain things and making it easier for developers all the way from creating a storage deal into developing your dev itself. So it's been a huge, huge undertaking for the whole team. Yeah, that's awesome. And Filecoin, the combination of smart contracts and decentralized storage is going to be mega. But you did kind of talk about what your interests were when you were working for looking at technology for the government of Singapore, before I went into the crypto space uh, full-time in 2018, I was an urban planner. And one of the things that we were really talking about uh, six, seven years ago were smart cities and ways in which we can integrate technology into the processes of cities, how we can have uh, vehicles communicating with infrastructure, and then sharing that information with things like light signals. So you could start to like uh, make the signals uh, for city traffic a little bit more programmable. 
from your role and your perspective when you were working for GovTech for Singapore, what was the kind of view on blockchain and cryptocurrency and these decentralized systems? Was it still a little too fresh for the government to be looking into? Or was the government very forward thinking and innovative and in its tech outlook? What was the outlook then? Yeah, I mean, I think outlook is a really good way to term it. I think it's something that hasn't been experimented upon, um, at least within the context of Singapore. I think where it's coming from uh, is definitely something that has been looked at and considered. There are a lot of people thinking, actively thinking about it. I think the government is very aware that this space is being built out. And also as a as a space or a physical country, that like physical space to host crypto communities and the Web3 community, I think Singapore is very open to that, to the industry coming in. Um, and I think things will change over time. I think the internal systems that we have are open to the idea and exploring it, but I don't think it's been integrated yet. But will that change with the whole industry coming into Singapore at such a quick and rapid pace? I think that will change and also change the way that we um, have regulations and the way that we make space for the industry within the country itself. Because I think eventually we recognize that if we want to be a smart city and this is a big technology that is coming up, is there a way that we can find a good balance between being a centralized entity, supporting a very decentralized service or application um, economy. Yeah, cool. Thanks for that outlook. And something else that I think is really interesting about your journey into where you've ended up here, where you're at today, and also using like the lessons from yesterday. When you were at Microsoft, you were doing DevRel. So first of all, could you just share a little bit of what developer relationships are and also how that ties into that kind of middle layer that you were just talking about in these decentralized Web3 projects? where you still can have somebody that is helping get a product released in a non-centralized kind of entity? Yeah, so I think the first part to the question is like what developer relations look like at um, Microsoft. So it was a pretty large team, I would say. Like, um, just for like comparison, right now we are a DX team, developer experience team of about three with maybe support from two more, so like maybe three plus two. And then um, at Microsoft, like, we had a whole huge suite of products that we had to advocate for. So the team came up to like 30 to 40. So it was really, really, really different in size. And so the work that I was focused on particularly was was half. So half of it was around like all the events that we were going to be doing for developers that also thinking about like how COVID hit during that period, like how we pivoted from an in-person to a virtual, all the meetups and making sure that, you know, you tear it down from conference down to hacks, down to meetups and how the all ties in and how do you catch all the developers. So very much focus on that piece um, and how we disseminate resources, get feedback and so on. And then the other half of my work was very much focused on the Asia community because I was kind of moving between the US and Singapore, but being from that region, that was something that I was taking on as well. So covering Southeast Asia and Korea and um, New Zealand also, like kind of looking at that whole diverse, diverse region and how do you um, localize. And so I think because the team was larger, we actually had the resources to be able to localize resources, adapt it for every single region on what that developer experience would look like. And so that was what it looked like at Microsoft. And also a lot of the resources that we put out or things that we developed was very much centralized. So we encourage the community to maybe build off of something that is fully finished and shipped from the company, whereas like it's very different in protocol labs. And this ties into the next part of the question, which is like what you mean by that middle layer there. Um, at protocol labs, like because everything's so open source, and we did have a small open source team as part of um, developer relations at Microsoft, but 
it wasn't largely the company's strategy for a lot of the product that we had, or at least majority of it. Whereas at Protocol Labs, like 100% everything is open source. And so that changes the way products are made, services are made. Like the very fact that we incrementally delivered this FEVM, I call it FEVM, which is FEVM, which is also the Ethereum compatible version of Bitcoin virtual machine. Quite a mouthful, but we basically call it FEVM. And so releasing this milestone of FEVM was a very new experience for me because we were delivering it in different stages. We were releasing it with different features, key features coming in at different phases and different different phases of our incremental delivery. And all along from like phase one till now coming up to launch, we have had people building with us from then. And they have also been building out the product, the solutions that they're working on at the same time. And so it's a very, it's a very fast loop where we, we built the product itself and then they take it and they're building it with us. And then they push out that service to the community. The community feedback has maybe built something off on their own. And so that loop just keeps running. And so when I say the middle layer is taken out a lot on, it's like, do you even have time for marketing? Do you have time for like the narrative, the business development portion of it, packaging it into like a suite, like, you know, subscribe here and then you pay this amount for this product. No, not really. Because then like I release the product, you use the product, you give me feedback, you can see my code and then you go build your own thing. And I think that's just, it's really beautiful to watch and in a very different way because you're seeing value constantly being created at a very rapid pace. And also people are just feeding off each other's energy and like the whole, that's how the whole momentum goes. I think what this ties into is like a really cool project that is one big part of the DX work in FBM at Protocol Labs because we have like a cohort of early builders that we've been running with about 100 teams actually from the day we started until now. And like initially we started with like 60 teams, that was like a lot of interest. And then we just kept having rolling applications. And now we're at 100 plus 115 teams that are building with us, which is just insane that they have like been able to tolerate all the like breaks and then, you know, the network, the test network being reset. And then all the kinks that they have been working with us nonstop and so much effort that they put into like giving us feedback. And then also some people even like building and doing the bug fixes with us. Um, so that has been really encouraging and it's a very different way of working, I think. When you say teams, is this like uh, somebody that is just spinning off like a brand new user interface for interacting with IPFS uh, using Filecoin? Is this like a new core developer that's coming in to actually work on Fevum? Who are these folks and what are these teams and what are they contributing? So I think this is the fun part, right? Um, these people come from literally anywhere. We open it up to the general public and um, people. We have a range. Um, we have people that have been working with us in the PL network for years that are really seasoned with how the deal making happens because that has never really been opened up to developers in general or DAP developers because DAP was never really a thing for Falcon yet. Like we're mostly a storage network. So you have these people that are really seasoned and they would build things that are. So, for example, we have teams like Glyph or Zondex that have been working with us for a long time. And so then they build out these products that are really useful for other depths to other developers and other depth developers to then utilize. So for example, they build out like a network explorer, they build out like a explorer API, glyph wallets, like different things like that, that has been core tooling that has been really helpful to other people that are coming in new. And so the range goes down to people who are maybe even new, new to Solidity. Of course, I think one of the criteria that we had was people had some basic understanding of Solidity and we didn't have to bring them up to speed from the 101. But then they might be new to Filecoin and a lot of them were new to Filecoin, but they've heard about the storage capabilities and they wanted to see what that can look like for that. 
So we had a range, and I kind of think that they built, aside from the developer tooling, we've also had like this whole document called the Request for Startups document for FEM. All these projects, the criteria that they have to be building with FEVM in some kind of way, seven. So it wouldn't necessarily have to interact with IPFS. Some of them do use IPFS in a way for quick retrieval of the, of the data within if their solution requires it from upload all the way to retrieval. So some of them do use IPFS. Some of them use IPFS for backups. Some of them might use it to just store on the mainnet first and then take the CID and use within their solution. So there, there are a few ways that they are interacting with the network or maybe not at all and just interacting with the test network. And we have people that are building out use cases from the request for startups document that I talked about earlier. So you have developer tooling and then you have the use cases that they're developing. And so these use cases are like a whole different bunch of things that we've proposed, but we've also seen them progress and develop and spin out in so many different directions from all these teams. Um, one really good example is called is, is like the data DAO example. I think data DAOs as a whole, like DAOs in general are like pretty commonplace, but I think what the FBM really enables that is unique is the data DAO, where you can create and store large data sets and large amounts of data within the community itself. So you could like, for example, vote and then it gets uploaded and then you can sell access to that data set and then collect funds for your DAO treasury and then repurpose that fund for your members, for example, to sponsor retrievals of the data instead. So we've seen a lot of different kind of use cases there. We've also had things like other tooling being built out, like access control, that's a really important one. We've had someone build out an encrypted NFT, so they've just taken it steps and steps further. Yeah, yeah. It's huge range. I can go on and on. Like, there's so many projects I can talk about. Yeah. I think uh, maybe we should have asked this question 15 minutes ago, but could you just tell us what Protocol Labs is and what the relationship is with Filecoin VM? What do you mean, like, product, what is Protocol Labs as a, as a company or what do we... Yeah, exactly. Because I oh, think right. a lot of people might not have heard of, and you've, you've already called it PL, so that's like the, the internal lingo. So maybe we could just like take a step back and talk about what it is as a company. Oh, and then... we should definitely start out with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we jumped the gun, uh, but it's a really exciting time. So that's completely understandable. So yeah, maybe just... Uh, just a quick little overview of what the company is and then what the relationship is with Filecoin VM and then even um, maybe some other clients that PL has. Okay, so from ground zero, and if you've listened this far, we will now give you the context to what you've listened to before. But yeah, so PL um, Protocol Labs is a project that was started um, by Juan Benet. So he is our CEO. And so about like seven years ago, I think he very much started with a product called IPFS, which is interplanetary file system, which allows like a peer-to-peer network of like sharing and storing files and making sure replicas of those files exist on the network and then on, on all the different peers in, in that community, right? But the hard part there was there was no incentivization. Um, you will have to have like really strong friendship for people who want to keep storing your data. And so they might disappear. There's no guarantee. But then something new was spun up, which is Filecoin Storage Network. And so that's like a it's separate, like to be very clear, Filecoin as a blockchain and a storage network is different from IPFS. IPFS is not a blockchain, but it allows you to, you know, kind of like torrenting, you do get to store replicas of the files and transfer and so on, but it is separate. Do we use them and complement a lot of the times? Yes, we do. I think some misconceptions is that sometimes people think Filecoin is, is an incentivization layer on top of IPFS. It's not exactly on top of IPFS, it's separate. And this is an important distinction because then understanding FBM and where that comes in. So IPFS, then we move to having the Filecoin network and these two big pieces constitute like key projects that PL works on. And also um, a lot of our projects have been 
created and complement to either of these two technologies or um, built off on top of that as a layer two solution. So for example, we have our data retrieval um, team called Saturn that's being built right now. So that's like a layer on top of, like the L2 on top of the Falcon network itself. And so Falcon and um, think about like Falcon and IPF as being like layer zero. And so layer one that comes in later on is not FPM. So FPM is the, it's like the next huge third part that's going to come into the Falcon network as like um, enabling programmability of the storage on the network. So that would be a layer one sitting there. What it does is that it allows you to program the metadata of the storage deals that are stored on the network. So you're not actually, to be clear, you're not programming the data inside those storage deals. You can do that with like decentralized compute using EVM or FPM, Falcon Virtual Machine, to orchestrate those jobs for you to do decentralized computation of the data inside those storage deals. But if you're using FPM on its own and you can use it for various use cases, you don't actually have to open up the storage deal to access the data. You could be like, this data needs to be renewed or needs to be transferred to someone else and so on and so on, but you're not computing the data inside. Just want to be clear that because some people, uh, it is kind of confusing sometimes. So it acts as like a side layer or it's its own new part of the stack? It's a new part of the stack. Yeah. So it, think of it like it's not a separate project to Falcon. It is actually going to be like a feature of Falcon Network. So it's a huge launch. And so there's a lot of emphasis on FEM, 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 but eventually FEM rolled up into Falcon itself. Yeah. And can you just maybe, uh, Eli5, why FVM is separate from EVM? Like, why can't the Ethereum blockchain do the things that FVM is going to do? Yeah, um, so that's a really good question. I think I should answer this pretty simple. Like, it's simple, but it's not, right? Like, it took a really long time to get there. <laughs> um, but the idea is that with EVM, you can write a smart contract, but then you would probably have to write to storage. So you have to write to a separate storage platform to be able to access debt for your debt to work. That could be expensive. It could also be not as performant. So, and it doesn't give you as much control over how you want to use the data, uh, how you want to manipulate that storage. Having FVM itself, I'll talk about FEVM in relation to the EVM. FEVM allows you to use whatever tooling you are familiar with, with the EVM. So if you're familiar with like Remix, Hardhat, we have starter kits and we have tutorials for that. Use that, connect it to the Falcon network. Right now it's the test network, but later on by March 14th, there'll be the main network connected to the right network, and you'll be able to deploy your EVM contract into Filecoin itself. So you're not actually deploying to the Ethereum blockchain, you'll be deploying to the Filecoin blockchain, but you're using everything you're familiar with. And when you do that, like whatever functions that you have in your smart contract, you can um, have those functions interact with the storage itself directly. So you're saving costs, it should be significantly cheaper um, to do so. It's also more performant because it's all in a native environment. And with the FBM itself, I want to see how we build it out and how we enable what we plan for the native version of FVM versus the foreign runtime version of FEVM. But the FVM version, as I know today, is very, very granular with the way that we allow you to manage, to manipulate the storage itself. You have a lot of control over that. You can even like decide how you want to put your programming right directly next to your storage within the whole setup itself, so that uh, within the architecture itself. So I want to see whether we enable that feature with FEVM itself, but I think that is really much the goal. So these are all the additional benefits that you get by using FEVM as compared to just EVM as, uh, as on its own. So we've actually done a lot of like partnered hackathons with ETH Global up to date. We see a lot of collaboration and a lot of like good benefits in working together, which is why like, yeah, we are very much tapped into the Ethereum community right now. Are there going to be any people during the Bidlathon here at ETH Denver that are building on your toolkit? Are you familiar with any teams? 
Yeah, we have like, um, so as far as I know, we have like 15 teams that are coming down in person that um, have been, these are like part of the early builder cohort that we've been having for five months now. And so they'll be there in person. You should come by and check it out. Like it's on, it's on March 1st, if, if anyone hears this. But yeah, you can see a whole showcase of what they've been building. So it sounds like you guys have built FEVM to kind of go after and garner the current market share of EVM-based developers. And then you're going to take lessons learned to build out the native, more granular FVM. Are you guys kind of using this as an opportunity to lure away EVM devs and to start building more natively on FVM? Is that why you're kind of iterating as you guys see fit? Not necessarily lure away. I don't think that's really the intent. Um, Yeah, good choice of words, but that's not the intent. I think the idea really is that around foreign runtime, think about like the strategy for FBM is that we will have native and that will be a huge part and that will be the core part. But we also have devoted like at least 40% of our strategy to the foreign runtime piece, right? So Ethereum was a really big bet for us. Um, The community is very active and we we did want to tap into that community, not necessarily lure them away, but have them work on FVM using EVM tooling, which is complementary to what the Ethereum Foundation would like to guide the community in with, right? So which is why we have so many hackathons that are in partnership with them. And then also we are not intending to be, we intend to be VM agnostic. So it's not, it's Ethereum today, but it could be another chain altogether in a few months. Like we're exploring like, how do we then activate the Polygon community? But a lot of thinking, Having this in mind before we've reached this point is really important because the way that we've built out all the compatibility for foreign runtimes, all the feature integrations that allow for foreign runtimes to be accommodated for within FVM, we've built it out being VM agnostic. So whatever we've done with Ethereum today, we should be able to take it with some ED refactoring to then build it out for like other chains that we want to work with as well. Mm-hmm. So th- I think that's the strategy for the foreign runtime side. And then for the native side, and native is always going to be better. I think that's just generally how it is. We don't expect developers to change. Like the reason why we put in so much effort to making sure that they can use the tooling that they're comfortable with is that we want them to stay where they're where they want to be, right? We don't necessarily think they have to transfer to native. But is it going to be more? Is it going to use like a better usage of gas fees if you use the native version? Because it is a little bit bloated when you accommodate for foreign runtime. Whereas like if you use the native version and you use like Rust. E++. These are recommended languages that compile really well to Wasm because it's Wasm, under, Wasm time under the hood. So we very much recommend that, you know, if you if you want to see optimization, you could change, the, you could opt to use the native version. But if you've already got a solution that's running an EVM and you want to write to storage within the same environment, use FEVM. So FVM is going to be polyglot or is it just going to be Rust and C Sharp? It's intended to be polyglot. Like you could use, like we, we've built out SDKs for assembly script, Go. These are all being built out already as we speak, preparing for the native milestone, M2.2. So right now, Fathom is 2.1 and we're going on to 2.2. But yeah, I, I think we do want to accommodate for almost any language out there. That's really why we chose to use Wasm. Yeah, I kind of buy into the multi-language thesis as well. Why corner a new dev who's migrating from some sort of like centralized web two company, why force them to learn a blockchain specific language like Solidity? Why not just provide them with the toolage that can allow them to compile into something that the blockchain will be able to read or interact with? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And um, 
one of the the leaders, the thought leaders in the Neo ecosystems, an ex Microsoft guy, John Devados, spent twenty years at Microsoft, brought .NET from something like zero to five hundred million dollars a year in revenue. Yeah, and um, he's always talking about you know how many developers do we have across the world? Something like twenty million, two hundred million, a crazy number like that. And how many blockchain developers do we have? Like maybe a couple hundred thousand. So how do we get the next wave of devs building these decentralized architectures? And it's by meeting them where they're at, allowing them to use the language they're the most proficient with. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think Wasm is great. Like, I'm a fan. I think it, it enables a lot of that ideology. And, you know, even through things like, let's say like ChatGPT, like we were playing around with it yesterday and we were like, oh, we can actually... <laughs> get certain um, Fathom contracts, like reference contracts, like a really simple version using ChatGPT. And, you know, there are all these toolings that are coming in and eventually languages, I think, I don't think it'll ever go away that, you you know, learning a language is not going to be beneficial. It will always be beneficial. But will the barriers between learning one language and not knowing another one uh, get thinner and thinner over time? I think it will. Um, and we see a lot of technology coming in. So I think building a hit for like a polyglot, accommodating for polyglot versions of like what you're building is going to be, yeah, essential and important. Absolutely. And something else that I'm a big believer in, obviously, I've been covering the Neo ecosystem since 2018. So I have to believe this is there's a multi-chain future. (laughs) So when you guys are looking into adding support for other chains, obviously, you start with EVM because that's just where the most developers are right now. But there's also these other blossoming ecosystems like Solana, the Cosmos, SDK, IBC World. Of course, you know, I've been covering Neo day in and day out, and there's a plethora of developers here. So there are probably so many other communities out there and other ecosystems that we're not even accounting for. And just like the top three that I just mentioned, what does that kind of outlook look like when there's a multi-chain future, but you don't know which kind of tools to start building for? How do you take into perspective the fact that there are just so many different ecosystems out there and how do you allow for kind of like plug and play interoperability? Yeah, um, I think that's a really important question that we also have to scope out at some point. Like I think it's a question that has been asked, right? And we do think about it. I think I will say this, FBM coming to Web3, I haven't been in Web3 for a long time, of course, but um, with all my other like people within PL that have been inviting me and also like giving me a lot of context. I've absorbed so much in the past months um, in the community a lot, right? I think what we realized is that FDM is going to be a game changer. I think this is not just us being like, oh, what we're building is amazing. Everything's amazing. We genuinely believe that it will be a game changer um, because it, you know, for the first time um, you're putting programmability with storage in the same environment and storage is just key, right? This, I think, will enable Web3 as a whole, like, the team, Team Web3, to move to a scale that is as large as what Web2 is capable of. I think this, this is the starting point for us to do that. And so because the impact is going to be so huge, we have anticipated that, you know, we hope eventually that the goal is that it's a multi-chain play, right? That this is something that every everyone can use in general and really change the industry at, at large. Because of that, why when we ask ourselves the question of how we build for interoperability, I think what we can manage as a team, I think what makes the most sense, like if we want to get to a point where so many chains can use it, but we want to get there fast, we can't do it alone. That's why like for us, like open source community, supporting the whole the whole concept of PL network. I don't think I've been at a company that has really built so much in like, I mean, open source is one thing, but like giving resources, giving grants, giving mentorship and like moving 
the team, our engineers to work with other engineers from the network itself or like outstanding community contributors. We're very much in that spirit and, and the same goes for FBM. Like we will pick some key chains that we want to build with. Like, yes, we're looking at Ethereum. Like we're doing, Ethereum. we've done Ethereum. We're, we're almost there. And then we're going to do Polygon and then maybe we'll do Solana, right? Depending, maybe the large one, depending on what our community feeds back to us and what's really important to them. But then we also really much hope that our community gets inspired and also get the right guidance and under the hood kind of documentation from us to learn how to build that out on their own as well. And so if we have that, then we can scale like super fast, right? So that I think that's very much the goal. Like we have, I think that's a good point. Like I'm like to do this. We have to give documentation on how you can, you know, build for other chains as well. But I, obviously that will only come like much later when we're this is actually working and, and running. Yeah, that'll be a having to build out documentation for other chains is a good problem. It's something that is a pain to do, but if the demand is there, then that means you guys are doing something right. You mentioned grants. So what does the grant funding ecosystem look like? What are the types of grants that get distributed? Who are the types of teams that are applying for grants? What's the size of the grant fund? Just would love to hear more about that. Yeah, um, I think it's a rolling program that we have. Like we just finished like one round of grants that we gave out. I think it was somewhere like 100K or 150K. Realistically as well, like, we do want to manage expectations, right? I think the reality is that we know we're in crypto winter, but at the same time, we just also just released the next round of grants that we're going to give. Like Tranche 2 is now ready and actually open for applications. I think we're going to give out like 20, 20 grants, if I'm not wrong, with either 15 or 20 grants. And each grant size is about 5K. Like these are small micro grants because a lot of these builders are starting out with, the, with just starting out with their projects. I mean, given that this is such a new feature to the whole ecosystem, it's something that every project is kind of like at a super early stage. So we're giving these 5k grants as we go along. I think there is like it's not the only thing that we're doing. Like we're also doing things like impact evaluators. So that comes from our network goods, network goods team. And so network goods really looks at like what's the public good impact of these projects that are being built. So not just having projects built for infrastructure or building tooling to support other developers, but also like how do you build stuff that is going to change the world for people on the street? Like people that don't even know what three is, right? Why would they care? How do we make this different for them? So we have like Schemes like that as well that give like a slightly smaller bounty, but we give that too. Um, we've also invested really heavily into our hackathon pipeline. Like East Global has been an amazing partner that we've worked with. We've run two really successful hackathons now, one last November and one just recently that just ended in February. And like we've seen like what? It was like it was a two-day hackathon and a 20-day hackathon, but in total we've received like somewhere of like 250 submissions or so. So it's been a lot of projects that have come to the pipeline. Cool. So yeah, so we we are investing there as well. We give a lot of bounties to every single hackathon that we're running. Uh, East Global is not the only partner that we're talking to, so we're trying to see, and this will run all the way till the end of 2023. So a lot of bounties that are sitting there as well to give to teams, right? And then at the same time, we also have accelerator programs that we are actively looking for. So there's just so much focus on FBM right now that we have our accelerator team actively working with all our accelerator partners and having them look at the pool of early builders that are on our radar and seeing who they can take up as they progress, you know, like reject now, but then guide them with mentorship that we're pushing into that program as well, and then bring them on the accelerator later on. So like even at East Denver, the first March event that we're running, we're going to have a 15-team showcase, and these teams built for six months, but we're also inviting all our accelerator partners and investors to come into the party as well, so that they can see what people are building. So we're trying to give all these like support to all these teams, and not just like have our product succeed, but have all these projects that are built on our product succeed as well. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm a member of a community funding DAO, and we recently 
funded a team distributing small micro grants as well. We recently funded a team out of Nigeria who is incentivizing blood drive donations wow. by providing soulbound NFTs to people who donate blood. And then also for the international kind of like crypto space, um, you can purchase what's called a life NFT and portions of that proceeds will go into a raffle pool that both NFT buyers and blood donors are entered into. So you're incentivizing people to donate to blood drive campaigns financially, and you're also incentivizing people to go and actually donate blood in a country that is at a blood donation deficit year after year. So it's really cool to kind of see these opportunities arise that like Web3 has enabled through unique funding opportunities and also verifying that they did indeed occur through this immutable ledger that everybody has access to. So I'm super curious to hear, and, and it sounds like these efforts through the accelerator programs and through the grant programs and just kind of like onboarding devs has really ramped up in the time since you got there. Mm-hmm. So maybe in your, your tenure, what are some of the successes that you've seen from these outreach efforts and these supportive efforts? Are you starting to feel the vibe that the flywheel is starting to pick up and this regenerative kind of progress is starting to be made forward? Yeah, I, I think there are, there are a lot of things that I'm really, really proud of as a whole. Like, as you can see, like passion for the cohort that uh, we've been working with only because I think at this point, like we, you know, we meet on a weekly basis, actually. So it's been weekly, like touch points, which is like more than I talk to my parents, <laughs> more than more than that. In September last year, so like I know the community one, well, like really, really proud of all the successes that they've had. You know, we have so many solutions. Like we've had this team called Lighthouse Storage that has been built. Like I'm just going to talk through like some key teams. Like they're all amazing. I can I can like talk through a hundred use cases, but obviously not going to get there. But like Lighthouse Storage is a really good example. Like perpetual storage. And so when I first met them in September, like they've been building with us for a while now. Like they've been part of the Falcon ecosystem and they've been in like experimenting with FPM but they haven't really implemented it yet. And a lot of their code was actually um, using EVMs and using Solidity. So when EVM came about, it made, them, it made it really easy for them to import that. And that I've seen them progress so much further, like from having a perpetual storage platform to then allow uh, enabling access control and encryption for the storage that you upload. And then I think the part that started to make them go like slightly viral was through all the hackathons that we had where they then turned what they had into an SDK and like a really simple CLI that people could use. And you see like everyone's like, I want to build that, but maybe I don't want to get into the whole story of how I can make storage deals because, you know, it maybe it's not my focus and I don't want to spend too much time there. And so they take like this application alone has allowed so many teams to build the project that they want to build. Like if you look at I would say a good 30% of hackathon projects just have these, you know, incorporated like how storage is CI and then they can have storage done and then build everything on top of that. So that's a really good example. If you're talking about things that uh, you talked about, you know, what your community funding DAO had supported with Africa, like doing um, incentivized blood drive, blood donation drive, we have a fair share of like solutions that are built for game changers. And I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to remember this because, you know, we have when you get into Web3, one thing I realized is that you get into a lot of the intricacies of how things work. Like there's a lot of independence and like, you're like the dog that walks itself and holds its own leash because you have to know like, you know that that meme of that dog walking? I always think of that in Web3 because I'm like, you need to know everything, right? To be able to build. And so a lot of our projects and a fair significant portion of our cohort is focused on the intricacies of making life easier 
as a developer within Web3, but we it's easy to forget like what happens if I don't care about Web3 and I want if I want skill across like let's say using developers as a, as a reference point, you have like whatever you said just now, like 200 million or something like that, right? I don't know what the number you said was, but you know, outside of the hundred thousand that are blockchain developers, who, who's gonna care, right? So we have like projects that we're building up more and more now, where I think we've gone into a certain maturity of seven where people can then build full depths. You have your storage, you have your retrieval, and then you have whatever features that you wanted to build programming-wise with FEF, FFM. And so we see more projects like that. Now, one really interesting one that came out recently is like Guardian 3, which I thought was really cool. Um, It's like a whistleblowing platform, but it's like secure communication between the journalists that can then opt into the platform, mint the soulbound token, but then can also burn it and opt out when they feel like my job is being in danger, I need to opt out right now. But, you know, they can stay on the platform and then the whistleblower themselves can then use Lighthouse Storage to then upload their their data. This is such a great story, right? They're using Lighthouse Storage and then encrypt it and then also set, like, be able to customize the duration of access that the journalist can touch that piece of content. So, and it's assigned to a specific SPT, so only that journalist can access it. And I've seen like the demo and it works and everything. I'm like, this is great. Like, you know, we could even put it out today and it could actually help a lot of people, right? So this is an example of how that whole community, like if you're asking about the regenerative portion, like that's how I see them supporting each other. In the longer term though, because this is just one cycle of six months that we've run, I am curious to see how we are able to keep this pipeline going of like projects that come up. And then um, like right now we're going to launch Fathom. And I think one of, we, we just had like a chat around like, what is the narrative of how that goes? And we're thinking about, you know, we also need to be able to inspire more builders to build more integration, like what similar to what Lighthouse Storage has done. And keep, if you think, if you're building a dev and you think of piece missing, like we thought notifications was missing. And through hackathons, like a very simple integration with push protocol has now happened. So people can integrate that into their dev. You think that's missing, build it out. And so we want to encourage builders to do that as much as possible and like create platforms for them to showcase that to the community so that people can take that and build. Um, so we've, you know, we've incorporated it into cheat sheets for hackathons, um, resources, the docs itself. And we're hoping through these efforts, it, it then allows the community to keep supporting itself and building out all these apps. Yeah, absolutely. This is where composability in Web3 is so cool because once you build a tool, a template, an interface, something that that code is open source and can be reused and iterated upon, which is super exciting. This might be kind of an unfair question because you've only been with PL and working in the Filecoin ecosystem for less than a year. But the entire time I've been in the crypto space since 2017-18, Filecoin has been a thing. I've always known about the fill token. You know, it's just been around. But it, it seems like right now things are really starting to kick up to launch into a new, like a new phase, even a new chapter. I guess my question is, why now? Why in the past year? What changed? What made like the Filecoin ecosystem kind of like launch into this brand new vision that's going to make it more interoperable, more usable, more integratable, and really just kind of like like this brand new thing that seems like it has a much more desirable use case Mm -hmm. i'm so glad that that's the impression (laughs) i mean sometimes it's hard to like assess it for yourself the way i see it and think why it's picked up is also i think fpm is changing the whole narrative around what filecoin is i mean for a very long like this is with the whole master plan that like Juan has always talked about right so we start with building out a super robust storage network it's been super uphill and like the team has done an amazing like the team and all the team the PL team and all the teams that have been building events have done an amazing job of like 
and like fixing that, getting storage providers onboarded, getting all that committed capacity for the network. And so that took a lot of building, right? And I think that's probably the 20, 2015 all the way to like 2020 portion where we're fixing all these parts, right? And so now that's like step one. And then step two was around adding data onboarding. So that's something that we're still going on with right now. It's kicking off, it's ramping up. I think the fact that VM is coming to the network is going to change a lot of things. And people are like, oh, there's a reason why I would want to store things on the Falcon network. Like there's an additional incentive. It's not like I'm storing it there so that I write to it and I have to pay the cost. And then it becomes a conversation around comparing costs with other storage networks. But then now it's like, there's an additional reason that I go there because I can do everything all at once in the network itself. And so I, that would very much be step three, which is around like, enabling that programmability of the network. So I think that step one took a pretty long time and now step two has been happening in the past two years. And then now step three is coming in really hot and fast now. And so I think that's why a lot of um, a lot of more energy has come out around Filecoin. Yeah, that's a really good example. So the first five years was kind of like building the infrastructure for the city to be built on top of, or kind of like the mass under the tip of the iceberg. It took a long time to get that plumbing built yeah, so that you can now build a robust ecosystem on top of that infrastructure. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we have a very long-term view on this. I think when we built these innovations, we're not just thinking like the success of Falcon as a whole. We're like, how is it going to change the industry at large? How is it going to change tech? And so even if we think like, oh, we took five years to build the plumbing, FBM is technically still the plumbing, right? So, you know, that could take like a year, two more years. And then we get to a point where then people can take off. Like you can just enter it, build a deck, maybe get to a point of low code, no code, and it just goes like even larger scale there. So whatever you think is big now, like it's not even big enough, like where we're thinking, we're thinking like way, way bigger. So yeah, really exciting future ahead. I have um a brief question and, and I'm cognizant of your time, so we'll wrap up shortly. What from your experience working on cloud teams and DevRel at Microsoft, maybe just having this insider knowledge. Why are decentralized networks competitive to centralized networks? That's like a huge, like huge question. <laughs> is that a PNG thesis that you want me to? <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's get the tweet version of this. To be fair, I think that this is my personal opinion, not representative of PL. I don't think either component will ever go away. I think centralized and decentralized will have to work together. I see benefits in both. And this is not just like a politically correct answer or whatever. I'm like, I really see benefits in both. And you need both, right, to an extent. And having worked at the government has also made me realize that as well. So I think decentralized pieces are, the benefits are pretty clear. You know, it's democratic as much as possible. It pushes the envelope on what democracy can look like when you decide on things. It also moves really fast, super agile. I think just by the fact, and this is maybe not the technology itself, but maybe because everything's decentralized, everyone owning a large part of it, you have you have to have people that are operating parts of the network that are very knowledgeable. And so it's mostly open source. Things are very transparent. Transparency is a, is a key part of the whole culture of Web3. Um, so that allows like much faster communication. I see feedback loops being much faster. I see products like being optimized and features changing. But, like sometimes time is I think I run by epochs now. <laughs> epochs are like the way that we, you know, measure like when our, um, our blockchain has reached a certain point. But yeah, time is just so bendable in Web3, I feel like things just move so fast. Like people are like, oh, three weeks? Like that's a lot of time. We can build like a full app. I'm like, okay, assuming we don't see for eat. But you know, like the past, like I think 
that's kind of the nature and I see like those are the benefits but then with centralized ways of engineering I think that there are some benefits to that too like you have it's easier to maintain things in the long term like or you have like one whole stack that works well together I think that's like the key part right because in decentralized networks there it's a lot of back forth conversation sometimes because you also have to figure out like if I built this thing but then I don't know what everyone else is building. And then we are like, at the same time, we're like, let many flowers bloom and we want everything to be built all at once. But is every single project going to be successful or will you have like a lot of projects that are just not being used? That's one thing to consider. But in a centralized version, it's like a whole suite that you go in and then everything's there for you to use. So I think it's a challenge that we have with FBM as well. Like how do we create a really simple way for developers to come in and be like, here are so many options for you but here's a really easy route that you can take or like through choosing this way, these are easy routes that you can take to get there, right? So that's a lot of coordination that you have to do because it's decentralized. Whereas right? decentralized is much easier to do that. So yeah, I see, I see benefits of both. I think that they both have to work in complement eventually. Yeah, and also like the other part is that tech is one thing, the people part is another thing, and then the regulation and having that be like formalized into the way things run, like government or whatever it is, like that's a whole other thing, right? And so you... You can't just be purely decentralized to like centralized. You have to have like a mix of both to be able to effect change. I think real change in society at large. Yeah. This is again like a thesis kind of question. So this is like a very conceptual view of how I see things. Yeah, I appreciate that. And there's always nuance, right? It's not going to be AWS or IPFS. It'll be AWS and IPFS. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, with certain things you, and you might want to have versions of something on both to, you know, for whatever users that you need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One kind of like final, last bigger picture question, since you're in the decentralized file storage space, um, what's kind of the buzz or the general outlook for the future of decentralized storage? What are the big milestones that people are kind of talking about? And I'll give a perfect contextual example. The narrative for Ethereum in 2020 and 2021 was migrating to proof of stake. And that was just like a big general kind of like direction we were heading. So is there something similar for decentralized storage in that little like realm of the Web3 space? Not, I mean, in as large as what proof of stake, that whole discussion was around, I don't think so. I mean, introducing programmability on the storage, like I'm not just in, just not cut them from FBM, but like that is also a big thing that's coming, right? Mm-hmm. And then also, I think, what was it, like, a month ago? I don't know, time is, like, weird to me now, but I remember, like, Binance or something released, like, a fair field or green field kind of version, but it was very similar to what FPM. It is almost, like, what FPM is trying to accomplish, and so they're building that out right now, which is also programmability on storage. So if that's picking up, and then we are launching as well, like, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of talk around this new feature to decentralized storage. I'm curious to see what they're going to come up with as well and like what that will look like and whether more such versions will come up. I mean, it's good. Like, I think we wanted to disrupt things. And so we, it's, it's flattery. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see. Yeah, that's really cool. It's, it's like in the Web3 space, you're always on the cutting edge. So it's super exciting. So you mentioned that a lot of your team and other teams that are building on FVM are coming to ETH Denver. And you guys are also launching FVVM on mainnet soon. So maybe just wrapping up, can you share some exciting things on the roadmap, even if you're repeating something you've already said? And and maybe what's the best way for people to keep in contact with you and with the team? Yeah, of course. So uh, 
March 14th. Easy way to remember the date. It's 314, which is Pi. We call it Pi Day because our chain ID, for some reason, is also 3141 for Hyperspace Test Network. Our, yeah, 3141 now. So yeah, it'll be Pi Day. We will launch Bevan to main network. It's already in our test network. It's already in our calibration network. It's being tested out right now. So if you if you want to go experiment, you can go experiment on calibration net. If you're a storage provider, of course, I think calibration net will be more appropriate. If you're a developer, you want to muck around, use some test fill. Our hyperspace test network is also running, so you can use that. And then once it launches the main network, test, 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 we will love people to see people building and giving us feedback. We, yeah, we anticipate dragons and like random stuff to happen. So, you know, all ready for that. And then um, if you want to get connected with us, like the Filecoin Slack is a really good place to go. I would say um, the channel where all of this buzz is happening around is the Phil Builders. So that's F-I-L-Builders, not Fiddlers, Builders. So Phil Builders is the channel that you can go to and you know ask any questions. There are no dumb questions. We've been also helping to clarify a lot of and identifying misconceptions that people have, which is why I explained a little bit of that in earlier in the podcast. But yeah, you can check us out there. Um, we also have an early builder cohort that is building right now. We are still progressing what that will look like once we launch because we do expect a lot of apps to be deployed to mainnet within the first month of launch. So if you want to participate in that, meet us on Phil Builders. We'll be having some signups or registrations there as well. And we yeah, we aim to have like 100 depths deployed to mainnet within a month of launch. So that will be an exciting and intense time. But, you know, again, everything is possible in three weeks, apparently. So... We'll get there. <laughs> After that, we will have the native version of FBM being built out later half of 2023. So that will definitely come out as well. So this whole year, a lot of FBM things will be being built out. Awesome. Well, Sarah, it was uh, really, really fun to chat with you to hear about the really cool things that you guys have going on and the psych and the passion that your team has and just the big picture narrative shift of adding programmability to decentralized storage it was really cool to geek out with you on this for the past hour. And I look forward to hopefully running into you and your team at East Denver. Yeah, uh, come by. You know, we'll love to meet you in East Denver. And um, yeah, come check out what Seven is building. But yeah, thanks so much for having us. Like, we are really excited to be part of like, you know, sharing it more to the ecosystem. People are really interested. So this was great. Awesome. Can't wait to keep up. Okay, great. Thank you. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I really enjoy these conversations with builders who are deep in the weeds. It's just really inspiring to hear their passion shine through, especially when new projects are joining an ecosystem after so many years of building. I also like the approach that the team is taking to building robust support for the Filecoin VM with an EVM-based focus first, but also planned chain agnosticism to support other ecosystems that might begin to flourish in the future. It was also a fun conversation and just awesome to catch up on all the great things that are going on in the Filecoin ecosystem. The project has been around longer than I've been in the space, and I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for the March 2023 rollout of the new Filecoin VM. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.